Hey guys, Steve here, Potent Phonics. Today we're going to talk about growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Going Officials Podcast. We're at episode 350, and we have a, a returning guest with us today. We have Matt from uh, Zenthanol. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Those are some crunchy beats in that intro. <laughs> Actually, I have a, a new intro that I'm waiting for my my buddy to, to get back to me on. Um, it's been a little bit of a delay, but we have a, one of my best buddies from back in Philadelphia. He's a really good DJ. And uh, one of the best DJs in all the Philadelphia, New Jersey areas who's going to be doing a super cool new scratched out uh, intro for us. So we'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, it's uh, always good to have you back. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. Um, sorry about the delays the last couple of weeks. We've had a couple of random uh, issues on Thursdays, but we're back to our normal schedule. Uh, I'm going to start doing some recorded episodes as well so that we don't have any gap weeks uh, like we've had uh, the last week or two. Um, Thanks a lot for joining us again, Matt. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself for those uh, that haven't, uh, you know, had a chance to listen to you before, and then we'll uh, get into some of the cool questions and, and topics that we had talked about uh, before the show. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist, and I'm the founder of Zenthanol Consulting. And what we do, what I do, is um, I collaborate with various people and I help folks with their IPM problems, their pest management issues, uh, proactive strategies, reactive strategies. I also have a YouTube channel with the same name, Zenthanol, where I make a lot of information available to people. Um, I really believe a lot in like communal outreach for IPM. I think that a lot of things are actually not as uh, problematic for a lot of people, but because people don't have a lot of uh, understanding of a lot of discrete details with regards to pests and their physiology and what, what affects them and why, especially when you're trying to figure out what the best uh, option is. Um, I try to help people out with that the most. And I'm very excited to be also working on a book about the similar concepts and sort of the theory of IPM and, and how it's evolved over time and kind of a future outlook for plant health management in general. That's awesome. I know uh, if you guys haven't checked out his YouTube channel, my favorite one by far is one that I don't really even know if it gets as many views or appreciation as some of the others, but he has a really, really, really cool video. It's a two-part video on the evolutionary history of cannabis and its pests. So like through time, so you can understand like how the plants dealt with certain pests longer than others. And you can kind of better understand why certain plants attack uh, cannabis, you know, at a much heavier rate than other plants. Um, it's it's really, really interesting. I haven't seen any other education like it on the web. And there's lots of other really cool, you know, intricate videos like that that are, have a, a different perspective than really you're going to see anywhere else on the web. And it's why I wanted to have him back on the show. Um, tell us a little about some of the latest content you've been putting together, because you're always putting out cool stuff and posting cool articles and new papers anytime they come out. Yeah, well, one of the things I've been trying to do a lot the last most of 2023 and also going into 2024 is um, I do like to make some long form content, but I've been trying to make a lot more shorter, easily digestible information. Um, I'm happy to say that a lot of cannabis research lately and other stuff related to <clears throat> tests and things like that has been uh, 
it's been prodigious. Like, like I can't keep up in some ways. If I want to make like a, a good quality or something I consider to be like acceptable, a certain standard, um, uh, then it actually takes some time to go through the research report, digest it a little bit and then shrink it down. And especially ones with like good diagrams and things like that. One short that I did recently or, or Instagram um, clip uh, that I did at Sync Angel is my personal account. Um, was about uh, these like viroid like replicates. Um, a lot of people know about hot plate and viroid in cannabis, but apparently there are other viroid like entities that are super common. It's been speculated this might be the case, but um, for the most part, viroids have been understood to be like mostly plant pathogens or almost exclusively. But um, new research has showed that it's common in our own uh, microbiota or or, or bacteria associated with our oral microbiome. Um, the ramifications kind of not known at this point, but uh, just one of those things where like, uh, like with viruses and plants, like for a long time, we didn't realize how common they were. Um, but when we got more technology that allowed us to, you know, sort of demonstrate their um, presence, especially looking at their genome and, and like uh, genetic components, they get sequenced. We go like, oh, that's weird. Like those look like viral signatures. Um, you know that why would that be here? What is that? And then we can find these whole all these oodles of uh, organisms. So, I think that's one of those things. I think it's overlooked some of those details. Like, I'm going to be at the Living Soil Summit. I'm going to be speaking at that event coming up, seventh, uh, eighth, and ninth in March. That's in Pahrump, Nevada. And I'm I'm one of the things I'll be talking about is of course the soil microbiome and how pests affect it and how it's effective uh, or how it affects pests and in some ways that I think are kind of unique um, like aphids helping the microbial population to increase because there's a lot of carbon in the honeydew and it hits the soil but some research has shown that like it actually makes the microbes compete or certain ones compete with the plant because there's lots of carbon but still but they still are nitrogen limited so they start to like use up more of the nitrogen than they would uh, kind of create that would be copacetic so uh, mutualism becomes a parasitism that way simply by the aphids being around there that kind of stuff is fascinating to me sometimes hard to quantify but it can explain why you might have um, problems with certain things potentially especially in living soil where the microbiome is so uh, heavily appreciated yeah no it's definitely people definitely underestimate the, the relationship between um, the microbiome and the root system and the uh you know, the pest resistance is it's why I'm so big on IMO. You know, if you're into natural farming, IMO and IPMO, having that chitinase uh, immediately available, and, and as well as the IMO biodiversity, triggering the genome of those secondary metabolites to turn on to help the plant defend itself or increase terpenes or fungal resistance or, you know, whatever it is that is that is triggering, you know, it, it varies by by microbe, obviously. But um, that that's what really people miss, you know, when they're doing hydroponics and you know, very sterile uh, grow environments, they're not getting those gene activation. Same thing with you have sterile soil. You know, where do I always see septoria? I'm sure you see this similarly. Where do you always see big septoria outbreaks? In really dead soil that was corn or soybeans or wheat the year before. They switch crops and there's no biodiversity to trigger any of these genes that help the plant defend itself. And then the, the fungi just, you know, tear through the place because there's nothing to, to really stop them. So um, I'm sure you see lots of that kind of stuff. And what is, what are the different um, relationships or maybe a couple of examples of ones that you've observed? But just to your point about septoria, I feel like 
on on that point, like there's a lot of different uh, fungi that, like a lot of people probably know botrytisinaria. They probably know like powdery mildew as a thing. Maybe they don't know the genus or the species, but they know of powdery mildew, of course, and um, maybe fusarium or something like this. These, especially fusarium, septoria, uh, rhizoctonia. Uh, Phytophthora, all of these pathogens that maybe they're very they're very well known in agriculture, but they but maybe cannabis growers have not experienced them or didn't realize they knew what they were. And like you said, like when you have soil from a crop, or you know that the history, like there's an agricultural crop there that might have some of these pathogens. A lot of them can host switch really easily, and some of them are really um, like they're really. They quickly create new strains and sometimes even what we call pathogen varieties or pathophars. So like they'll they'll like hyper adapt to a species really quickly. Uh, and Septoria is one of those, I think, that has uh, there's several species of Septoria with like special like, oh, this is the pea specialist. This is the uh, uh, bean specialist, a green bean or something. And I think cannabis probably is so probably already like that, but we just haven't quantified that very well. You know what I mean? But if you don't, but you're right. If you don't have, um, like I like to say that like uh, because plants don't have like they don't have like white blood cells. They don't have like some part, the adaptive immune system as it's called. Not that their immune system doesn't adapt, but we just call it the adaptive because it it on the fly adapts to things that it that it encounters and plants. kind of do this, but not quite the way uh, we would call it just innate immune system. I, mean, I think you're aware of that. I, or I know if you're aware of that. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that um, uh, this system can be primed and like microbes are like the, they're like the mercenaries. If the white blood cells are like your soldiers that are already there, your body produces them, then microbes are like a mercenary group that plants attract and then sustain. And there's a cost associated with that sustainment. And sometimes plants will not even interact with things like mycorrhizae if certain nutrient levels are higher or lower, right? So um, if you want to make use of them, and also if you want to be sustainable and more efficient, then there's a lot of, then you have to like make these considerations and um, that went all over the place. But that's kind of, that's kind of what a holistic picture is. It's kind of a little all over the place, somewhat. <laughs> I definitely agree with like stockpiling, you know, especially if you know, what the microbes will do and especially if you if you're like like with the ipmo um one of the things i'm the most interested in is like biopriming which i like to use the term a lot but like uh you don't have to have the caterpillar elicit the response if you can do somewhat or most of the same thing and then when that caterpillar comes in the plant's already primed towards it or when powdery mildew comes in if you already primed it towards biotrophic fungi like powdery mildew resistance goes up really high and it and even plants that don't have like a really strong uh what we might call like a naive uh resistance where they don't have to be primed and have like a really robust thing going on so i think that's really cool and it would make a lot of cultivars more resilient without all of the uh or as much work with resistance genes so we should find those two Yeah, it's definitely um, uh, uh, an area that I think people neglect quite a bit. Um, I've seen about three different types of septoria, and it seems like all of them pretty like, well respond to the same kind of probiotic treatments. And that's another one, too, where there aren't a lot of chemical options, right? There's a lot of these different pathogens where if you don't go the biocontrol route, you're simply not going to get you know a good response, and you're not going to have any, any way to treat half of this stuff. So 
it really is something that um, you, know, you need to, to pay attention to if you aren't already. And for those of you that aren't familiar with IPMO, I do have two videos on, on how to do that on my YouTube channel uh, on Potent Ponics. If you're listening to this in audio format, um, as a whole how-to guide. Uh, thanks. Shout out to Chris Trump, the inventor of it. Uh, who, uh, was kind enough to share it with me when I was stuck in Zimbabwe and we got cut off from imports through the COVID, which was a, quite the experience. So what are some of the different things that you've um, been working with lately and, and um, uh, you know, are excited to, to kind of talk about or use this year? And there's a lot of new biocontrols and some new beneficial insects coming out on the market and there's lots of cool this year and a bunch of other cool stuff. What are some of those things that you've been excited about for this year? A lot of the things that I'm really interested in, um, it's kind of related to the book I was talking about earlier. The the working title includes this concept that I like to use called the Ever Swarm, which I've used in like Skunk Magazine and some other places, which is basically like all of the different adaptive organisms and at once. And you have to consider like if you only get thrips or you only get spider mites, then it has strengths and weaknesses and you can exploit just those. But if you have a bunch of different pests, that you have to prepare for sometimes even for plants like the immune response for one pest will actually make it vulnerable to another and vice versa and that crosstalk you know and the same with the microbes too you know eliciting certain responses sometimes you gotta be a little bit strategic with that um and i think that's that's something that so things that allow us to accentuate that i've been super excited about uh i know it's a little bit high like a little bit high minded a little bit of a ten thousand foot uh, look at, at things, but like that kind of systemic approach, things that allow you to, like, for example, I saw this device just a couple of days ago. Uh, I think it's called Terra Sarah Fly or something like that. A video came out on LinkedIn uh, that I saw. And basically, it's like a sticky card trap system. I don't know very much about it, to be honest, but like things like this were like basically an uh, insect gets, it lands on it. Uh, it takes a picture, focuses on the insect, it takes a picture, scans it, uh, identifies it using AI, I think, uh, or some kind of machine learning or neural network. And then it, um, it it sends you the picture and like gives you this report and like, and then you can attach it to other things like here's the recommendations. And um, I just think things like that. Are, and then it, what it does, it flips and it gets rid of the pest. So it like refreshes itself, which is nice. So you don't have to go out and I mean, over time, you have to refresh it and get rid of the receptacle. But something like that is kind of cool. Um, I've talked about the the Pats S and the Pats X system uh, before, which is like this drone that goes and flies. And um, I don't know how relevant it would be in cannabis, but it basically can destroy the moths with the propellers. Um, you don't want to get like like a bunch of moth guts on your flower, of course. But it's good because it can also discriminate. So it can go after like an invasive species pest and not go after like a native moth that's important for the environment. I think that's a really cool thing. Uh, I know that you're working on, uh, I don't know how much you like to talk about your own system, the the, the Grow GPT. Oh, yeah. No, we talk about the, the AI all the time. I mean, yeah. I, 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 that is something else I think is really important that I'm excited about. I think that... Um, going over it the way that I have very briefly. I think that um, it's got a lot of good sectional information. I think that, I just feel like however you're doing it, and I don't know the details, I feel like it's it's um, kind of focused and narrow enough. And I think that the, I tried to I tried to quiz it with some stuff that's like really 
kind of esoteric and it still gave me some really good info. Um, it was not really, um, it was not really wrong ever. Maybe it could have been like a little bit more, as you described recently, uh, a little bit more better, a little bit more right. But um, the details were good, which is way better than a lot of other chat GPT like things I feel like have progressed. Um, so I appreciate that kind of stuff. Things that will like be like a force multiplier for the grower, especially one who's got intermediate and advanced knowledge, um, but not a lot of ways to quantify like the microbiome, for example, or that kind of stuff. I, I look forward to combining that stuff too with like some of the work that Matt Powers is doing on the DNA sequencing, right? Like in the next couple of years, you're going to be able to like very quickly plug your USB DNA sequencer into your computer and run your soil and relief samples and then immediately know what the hell is going on to like the untuned degree. Once that's all hive-minded with all, all everyone's data sets, like that's going to game change agriculture in a way that we haven't had since like irrigation. You know what I mean? In terms of... of increase in production and that that really excites me and if anyone uh, hasn't had a chance to check it out be sure to check out the um there will uh you can see here the uh poppy left cultivars um you can check like it says sign up for the subscription if you want to be a paid um supporter uh you get access to the early access version of all of our um our latest models of the grow ai assistant and then we're about to release the first free version um, which is currently in beta uh, once we get the last couple of kinks out of it, which we're working on right now. We're down to two two uh, bug, uh, bugs left before release that we want to splash before we put it out into the public. So that'll be available as well. Um, so if you haven't checked it out, we have a, a, two different episodes on that with Caleb. And you can go back and check that out. But we have a, a lot of cool resources on that. It's again, popular cultivars on, on Patreon if you want to check that out. But uh, but yeah, it's, oh, yeah, stuff like that will really help democratize a lot of this information too because... A lot of uh, same thing with your education, you know, all the your teachings that uh, there's a lot of really awesome stuff on, you know, biocontrols and beneficial insects and cultural practices, but very little of it in other languages, right? There, There is some on the certain ag, but not like you go into most of the rest of the world and talk about natural farming and they're like, what the fuck is IMO? Like lacto what? Like, like, but having this available instantly translated to, you know, 125, 150 languages, whatever we're up to now. Um, really helps democratize that information and what's cool is you can take you know and you when you do your book you can convert that very quickly to all these different languages and, and things like that as well and um, with the advent of ai it's going to really help the rest of the world kind of catch up to some of the more modern agricultural practices and something i'm really looking forward to in the next few years one thing i want to touch on like what you said with matt powers and the genetic sequencing one thing I'm really excited with that is like, for example, in a recent video I made on my YouTube channel, I, I call it the ultimate aphid analysis uh, because I, I mean, I don't like to make bold statements like that, but I looked, I looked, I feel like it really is as, as close as I can. I hope somebody tops it, to be honest. Uh, but I did a deep dive on aphids in general. I go through their evolution for like 200 plus million years. Um, you know, what capabilities they developed, how, why, Basically, they predate flowering plants. They've been around since before flowering plants by quite a bit. Their ancestors did a lot of good things correctly. And one of them was having a really good symbiotic microbiome. And uh, in it, there's a there's a section where I talk about something called APSC, which is the Cithrocyphum pisum, which is a type of it's the P aphid, a, sec, a secondary endosymbiont. But this is a virus. It's a bacteriophage. And it actually is in, it's installed, it's, it's inside the genome of the bacteria 
that holds it as a symbiont. So the bacteria Hamiltonella defensa is the primary symbiont, and it helps the aphid with a bunch of things. And when it has this virus too, not all strains do, and not all strains have the same kind of strain of virus, this is where it gets complicated, uh, but it, it produces toxins that kill uh, parasitoid wasp larvae really effectively. So I know I've definitely encountered people who have used these wasps and some sometimes they work really well, sometimes they don't. There's a lot of reasons why maybe they didn't use enough, which is hard to qualify and quantify sometimes, you know, especially if you don't have the personnel or the logistics, um, you know, capacity to like record certain things or to really keep a good eye on it. Uh, sometimes they work really well in certain locations, especially if you supplement them with nutrients and water. But my point is that this is another thing that can be an effect. And when you genetically sequence these aphids, like if you could go take some samples of these aphids, uh, send them off to a lab, or maybe you have your own lab in-house, right? Or, or a system that can uh, sequence them good enough that you, you find out, oh, these have APSC, you know, B1 or something, reference genome here, then maybe I don't use Aphidias ervi or Aphidias matricarii, and I use instead lacewing larvae. Now, there might be other reasons, more basal and more fundamental that might come about, like ec the economics of it and all that. But for those who want to have like a, and, I, and for the Everest form, you need to have a, I think, a multi-layered defense, a system of systems kind of idea. I think that's truly holistic and ecologically conscientious one too. That's not going to mess up the environment as much as possible. So I'm just excited that all that power is going to be in people's hands. And I agree with you pretty soon. And then you can, and then you take something like your, your, your AI platform and you can, if you bring a new person in who has zero experience, you know, you give them a magic device and suddenly to, in some regards, they can at least have a really good companion that brings them up to like, if you were to use like a leveled system, like maybe they're now a level two instead of starting at zero, you know, or it's like a, playing a video game and you generate units and they have, automatic veterancy because they have good training or something like that. You know what I'm saying? That's uh, uh, it's a simplification, but I think it's a beneficial thing. No, I, I totally agree. And um, for aphids, I've found, I've tried and tried with the beneficial wasps and uh, I've never, well, I've definitely seen the, the mummies and seen them work. I've never seen them really kind of systemically catastrophically collapse the population the way that I have with like something like the Bavaria Bassiana or Isaria fumisteraceae or, or something like that. Um, I don't know if you've had a similar experience, but my, my go-to really has been the um, uh, Velifer, the, the BASF, uh, the very Bassiana strain. That one seems to be the most aggressive of all the ones I've, I've tried. I agree, actually. And um, like my experience has often been that the parasoid wasps, for at least in cannabis, for rice root aphid and cannabis aphid in particular, uh, you know, I feel like you can't like rely on them by themselves. So I feel like you get a better control a lot of times. Obviously this will matter when you get them and what your capacities are and things like that. But I, I feel like usually like dollar, dollar to dollar or whatever um, per unit, I feel like lacewing larvae are really aggressive and really work well, at least in the foliage, not really in the, in the soil. And I also agree with you that the Velifer strain of Bouveria does really well too. Um, I usually interact with people who are using uh, the, the grasshopper active or the GHA strain that's really common and like Botanic Garden, that kind of a thing. 
but um, I have used uh, that product as well. And I also feel like it, it goes really well. And there's a lot of research out there showing um, other strains uh, that are used in research and improvements and virulence and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and Bouveri has a lot of other beneficial effects, as you well know, in uh, the plant immune system by stimulating certain immune responses um, just by being present in the tissues sometimes. So that's really exciting. I, I saw that we had a question from Goathead Gardens about um, controlling sugar ants, uh, farming aphids in a living soil bed, and uh, about how fungal bi biodiversity might be able to help. I, I think that, like, specifically, you could um, apply something like Bouveria or something like that. Uh, if you were able to find if the ants were on your property, because maybe they're not, but maybe they are, you could maybe apply it to the nest potentially. You could also maybe, if you wanted to be creative, um, I don't know if you're able to do this in a commercial setting or if this is allowed or whatever, but um, there's research that shows you can make like a so-called auto-inoculation trap, or basically you can dope some granules of Bouveria with some kind of a bait, something that will attract them. Uh, and then they they take it, you know, like a like a sugar liquid or something. Then they put it in their gas or their communal stomach. They bring it to the ant queen. They kill it. They kill the larvae. Um, it's a gruesome way to go out, but super effective. Yeah, um, I've had a little bit better luck with metarizium uh, for ants and termites, especially with the termites that bore into the stalks of the plants. Metarizium really has been the go-to. Um, the other option you can use for ants, um, you wouldn't want to use it directly in the beds, but you could use it in your walkways and like the border of the building and directly on the nest would be boric acid. Um, boric acid really kicks the living crap out of ants and um, it works really well. Just don't like dump it on the roots of your plants. You can overdose your plants with boron, but um, insects have a very, very, very low boron tolerance, um, but it's, it's used in things like eye drops for babies for eye, mild eye infections in humans. You have an idea of how gentle it is, and it's it's not a particularly harsh chemical, boric acid. Um, you know, it's very gentle. You know, when used as directed, just keep it away from your scorpions and pet tarantulas, and you'll be fine. But we used to use it all the time when I worked in the pet trade. We'd walk down the aisles and the, the dog food and cat food aisles and sprinkle a bunch of, you know, twelve mule um, borax from uh, boric acid from. Um, uh, walmart and then take a leaf blower and blow that underneath to keep all the bugs off the dog food and you know we had birds and fish tanks and everything else you know with open tops and never had any kind of problems so it's pretty gentle and just don't go crazy with it in the plant roots and so i think that like having that chemistry literacy is really important another thing that the grow gpt um grow gpt is that what you're calling it i forget <laughs> Calling it the Natural Farming Agricultural Assistant now. I mean, I forget what the official name is. We changed the name of it when the original okay. was after some feedback. The AI Agricultural Assistant is the official name. Of it. AI Agricultural Assistant. I like that. Yeah, I want to use the right name. You know, um, uh, <laughs> but like, it. but like things like that can give you. Yeah, it can give you that that literacy that you might not have. It's hard to be an expert in every single field. In fact, I think it's impossible. You know. I work as a consultant and I definitely agree, like beware the consultant that can do everything for you, you know, like probably they can't, you know, probably not, not as adequately as like, you know, getting various specialists in certain, in certain fields. Um, but IPM is one of those where like, it's not just insects and not just mites and that's just fungi. It's not just bacteria or microbes. It's, it is kind of a confluence of factors and,
And so in that way, it is kind of like, got to learn a lot of things. But I think people like you and I are very passionate. And that makes that like not a chore or tedious. I would be, I would hate to work with somebody who it's like, oh, you know, that's just my job. You know, I, I, I went and I got a certificate or something and I'm, I'm fine. And this is my job. And that's all I do like for eight hours. No, I want somebody who's as passionate about it as, as the client is with growing, you know, otherwise it could be a catastrophe. Do you want to talk about a little bit about the different mechanisms that you go about with IPM from cultural to chemical to biological and the different the different pieces of the puzzle there? Because you, you just kind of touched on that and I thought it'd be a, a good thing to kind of mention. Yeah, yeah. So traditionally, there's a there's various like kinds of techniques for IPM, right? And so usually this is this comes across as like bio controls, right? Biological control agents, so things that are alive, and perhaps viruses too, depending on your definition of that, um, which has become I think more contentious over time. But um, you know things like that, bio controls, uh, chemical controls. It's in the name. It's chemistry. Is whether they're natural compounds. derived from plants or other uh, subjects, or if they're from synthetic chemistries that people might apply, um, things like this. Uh, there's physical controls, so to speak. So that's things that are like not necessarily chemical, uh, so to speak, but like UV light, for example, or technically manual destruction. However, that comes about would also, I think, follow under like physical control. So it'd be crushing them or Or, um, or using a net or a vacuum in some uh, extreme cases, things like that. Uh, they have like, I think you've seen some of those devices that they, that they make in uh, like strawberry fields or things like that, like Ligus, uh, not, not advocating for in cannabis so much. Um, what am I forgetting here? Oh, um, cultural controls, of course, right? So, that, so that's like your procedural stuff, like how you do things. In a lot of cases, they cost zero dollars and zero cents. I like to focus on those a lot because you can do a lot with a lean system. Um, and although I am talking a lot about like the importance of having like a multi-layered component, like if you can afford to, and to whatever degree you can, you like, if you have a certain pest, you want to attack every life cycle, ideally, uh, every, every, every part of the life cycle, you want to attack each one um, as much as you can, for example. or you want uh, predatory mites or things like this that are around at a certain threshold. Because if their prey goes away, maybe they're not omnivorous and they die. If they are, you can feed them on pollen and things like that. So you can have this, this uh, just like with like microbes, if you apply them often in the phylosphere, they'll stay around for a period of time. So um, maybe you've learned that you have to not just apply once, you want to apply multiple times. And what the right rhythm is for you. Maybe you know that you get spider mites. Like I was working with a Gerber grower who um, they would get leaf miner. Like I still remember we would get it like between like just about always like clockwork week 30 or I'm sorry, week 28 um, through like week 32 is like the, was like the sweet spot. That's when the population crescendoed. We could always see in the yellow uh, glue traps. We could always see that like the population will dip So that's all the the flies dying and then reproducing in the larvae and the leaves and then it goes up and it's it's always like at the peak of summer and this was in San Diego uh you know so like if you have that information then we knew that if we applied a bunch of diglyphus wasps they go after them as a biocontrol basically i like like i was very uh, integral to the change in their ipmsop and they like saved like hundreds of thousands of dollars just by 
uh, not applying them at the wrong time, applying them very precisely and accurately. We also did a lot better when we applied persimilis, although it got to the point in some cases where it made more sense economically to just apply uh, every week a little bit of persimilis because we we expect that we expected for certain weeks that we would just have them no matter what. Um, and then they would kind of die down as the temperature cooled. So those are kind of cool examples, I think, for the use of, of those defenses. We had a, another question from chat. It says, we know our plants respond to particular pests with uh, idiomatic to the pests, uh, terpene profiles like ants farming aphids. Did we farm in situ insects for specific profiles? <clears throat> Uh, so I talked about this on a podcast recently on the on the future canvas project, but um, actually, yeah. So I like to drink a lot of tea. I talked about this uh, Taiwanese mishang, which means uh, 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 is it black honey or honey tea? So cha is tea, but um, this this tea uh, they let leaf hoppers feed on it intentionally. There's a special tea leaf hopper that goes after it. And um, it, as a leaf hopper, it doesn't like eat the leaves, right? It just it, it sucks sap, so it causes an immune response in the in the leaves, and it gives it. And I swear it's true because I was tasting it, uh, kind of a honey-like flavor, almost like there's a sweetness there, a more, in, at least for me, a more perceptible sweetness that does kind of remind me of specifically like a honey-like substance rather than like, I don't know, granulated sugar. Or like mapley syrup or that kind of a thing it had this bend as far as i can you know that's the best way to describe it so i think there are examples of this um, already in play but i feel like um there's a risk to that too because like with aphids aphids are the biggest vector of, of plant viruses for sure um and next after that are maybe thrips and or white flies or leafhoppers maybe in some cases so um, like if you let them feed, they might be one of your unlucky examples where a, where a virus gets transmitted or something. So I think that there are risks there that you might not want to take, but you might be able to replicate with like microbes or other things like this. Um, I do think you can farm uh, banker aphids though. Like aphids are specialists on like wheatgrass or whatever, and then you can raise parasitoid wasps on them. I'm a fan of that. That some people I've worked with have done that to great effect, but it's contextual. Oh, yeah. The only other person I think we've ever had on the show that talked about that, Mike West talked about, um, they did a bunch of tests on some plants. Uh, maybe it was one of the cops he was judging or something. And um, I think it was Mike West. You have to correct me if I'm wrong. I know you listen to the show regularly if you're in chat uh, or leave a comment. Um, but they found like specific, I forget which cannabinoid it was. It was T8. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but there was this, in the episode which he talks about it where there was a specific terpene or cannabinoid profile that was associated with powdery mildew and it got him thinking if you could make like a neutered version that you could kind of spray on the, the plants at like week five or six i wonder if you could make like a corn smut kind of situation where you know you'd have a strain that was kind of adapted for that expression and then spray this benign you know fungi across the plant or whatever that would trigger that to, to super boost the production of xyz component but that's getting really really advanced with, with cannabis stuff and that would kind of be on the 
there might be a few people researching that in like a pharmaceutical lab or something, but that's probably the, the extent of people researching that kind of stuff right now, at least for cannabis <clears throat> that I'm aware of. I mean, even, uh, even in other crops, I feel like that is kind of cutting, maybe bleeding edge. Um, but I think, but that is what I'm interested in talking about all the time. So like, and I think that, I think that in some cases the reaction can be very, um, predictable and kind of uh, one dimensional, which is good when you're trying to manage a bunch of factors, right? You don't want a bunch of like, like a dirty drug versus like a more precise thing where you have other effects potentially, or certain people have more uh, disparate reactions. So it's harder to kind of um, predict those sorts of things. Whereas other microbes will only work at their most efficient or optimized with like a consortium, right? And they all have to kind of play nice and I think that, uh, but I do think that that's definitely doable. Definitely. So it's just hard. It's just hard to me because when I talk about these things and whenever people refer to like these new technologies, of course, the first thing the cultivator says is, well, how do I know it works and how much is this going to cost me? And honestly, that's what often, oftentimes decides whether or not people do it or not. I think. Um, so I think when that becomes more possible, possible, um, I think we'll see a lot more widespread adaptation, but hopefully we don't, we won't need that, um, so much. We had, um, uh, just another topic on the Bavaria bassiana, uh, uh, and fungal pathogens for insects. Um, what are your thoughts on combining them? Because especially when I'm dealing with like aphids or, uh, leaf hoppers, sorry if the thunderstorm is in the background, uh, a pretty violent storm blowing through right now. I hope it's not, uh, getting on the audio. Um, what are your thoughts on blending Bavaria bassianas? Like I've often blended BioSeries with with Velifer or blended um, one of the other uh, uh, Bavaria bassianas with with you know kind of fifty fifty for for that portion. Blend them together uh, and then use that on application, or even you know brewing it uh, a day or two ahead of time on, with some insect frass. Um, what are your thoughts on on using stuff like that to try and uh, increase the virility of it by you know producing hybrid strains? For actual hybridization, I'm not sure. I I um I have gotten this question or a similar kind of question before. Um, I think you've heard me talk about how like I think that like with the Bavaria strains, Bavaria bassiana, if if somebody is growing the Bavaria many 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 generations on a um a source that's not. Uh, that doesn't really have like an immune system, like dead insect material or whatever. So they go unchallenged and these virulent genes that they have, um, you can get the opposite effect potentially because they essentially, um, they're like sharp teeth. If you don't use them or over time, they get dull and they're also metabolically very costly. So if the Bavaria can get away with um, basically with continuing its life without having to produce those uh, metabolically costly things, they will lose them and they continue to go. Um, but what you're talking about, I think rescues that quite a bit because maybe they don't hybridize, but they can, they can have different profiles that allow them to attack in better ways. And, uh, and also I think it's like having like a, a cocktail of, um, attackers, essentially like a serum of many different things versus having something that's more one dimensional. And I think that's really, really nice. Cause you know, that Bavaria Bastiana will have a broad spectrum for the most part, but it might have different enzymes that, that do better for certain kinds of 
uh, cuticles and how they're com they're composed, or or when they penetrate through the uh, insect body, because um, insects can develop resistance to biocontrols, and we've seen this also with things like BT with the budworm moths, which I like to talk about. Uh, but I like the idea of using uh, multiple Bouveria strains, or the idea of using um, just like multiple microbes that work in concert, because that's kind of like the idea of rotating different pesticides, right? So that you don't get one resistance, because ultimately, chemicals are just molecules, and the the compounds and the the toxins that these uh, fungi produce that are very selective. Um, they also are, can be slightly different. It might bind with the receptors in the insect a little bit differently if they've got a, a long history. So I think that if you know that, then it makes total sense why you would want that kind of redundancy. Whereas some other people might say, why do I have to buy three different strains of Bavaria? Why would I want to do that? But there might be a really good reason. It might actually increase the efficacy in total, and it might be way more, way less expensive when you're more efficient. Oh yeah, using those biocontrols is definitely cheaper than than going the beneficial insect route for not all, but most insects, at least as a general thing. Um, again, it depends what you're fighting. If you're fighting something specific, then sometimes the beneficials can be much better. But if you're trying to kill many, many different types of things at once, the exception of maybe aureus, definitely uh, at a big scale can be a little bit easier, um, for sure. Microbials, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I feel like on the pyramid of like biocontrols, microbes, like a lot of things, should be kind of at the bottom. I totally agree. Easier to scale up, um, uh, you know, and you kind of get more bang for your buck, I feel like, generally speaking, for a lot of them. You, your workers don't complain as much about spraying Vivaria bassiana as they do when they release uh, rove beetles or aureus that are biting them when they're releasing them, you know? <laughs> I had somebody, I had a client ask me uh, a few days ago about Arias and, and getting bites. And I was like, look, I this is why it's important to like draw from information that might be outside of your experience. Um, and not if you haven't experienced it, it doesn't necessarily mean it just does not be true. Maybe it is. I, as far as I can tell, have never been bitten by Arias, but I know people who have. I trust them. Um, in fact, I have had somebody uh, be like, ow, you know, and we see there's the Arias, like right where they got, you know, stung and a bit. And we know there are examples of these in research. So it's like, even though I've never experienced it so far, um, it definitely happens. And I think that like, they're like, well, you know, what do you think about that? And I, th I was like, well, you know, some people might have a sensitivity, you know, if you wanted to use an alternative, here are some of your options. So Um, and it might like really lower morale. Like I am a bug guy, so I don't care about it as much, but other people do. And I think that's valid. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've only ever had issues when we had like a pretty thriving population because we had beaten back an insect uh, issue that we had, and uh, it was during harvest, and like they weren't shaking the plants off or anything, and there was still some in there, and, and got got bit on my hand, but it wasn't that big a deal, you know. After about an hour, it was no big, you know, back to normal. So it's not like it's been just annoying and funny to tease people about that stuff. So. Yeah, <laughs> um, I agree. That's always been my experience. I haven't actually encountered somebody who had a really bad reaction personally. And if, if that is the case, I think it's quite rare. Now you do that with a wheel bug, which is one of the other native cousins, you're going to have a bad day. I'll tell you what, never pick one of those up. I, I, I haven't had it, but I've had workers 
I was working with did, and man, their their hand was pretty tore up for 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 quite a while. Um, we had another question in chat. Can you elaborate on usage of insect frass tea? When to take? How to use it for best results? You recommend it, and for what pests does it work best for? In your experience, thanks. Yeah, I think this is a, a super multi-layered question. I don't get a lot of experience using it too, so I'll try to be brief and not kind of overspeak. Uh, I'm curious uh, your experiences too, Steve. But um, but as far as like specific insects, I don't feel like um, I think it kind of depends on the frass that you're getting too. Like I was talking with somebody who they were they were selling uh, black soldier fly larvae frass. That had been dehydrated so their frass is normally liquid and there's a microbial component that's very attractive for various reasons some of those microbes are or have the effects of like plant growth um uh, supporting bacteria and things like this so things that were associated with increased biomass or they grew faster or or things like that um and then of course there's like the nutritional component as well Uh, but when we talk about like the bioprimming aspect, I think that it's it's kind of one of those things that's hard to quantify. And I've definitely read research about how using, so like do this, I just remind me, this say chitosan or chitin? Hey, it's for chitin. With uh, with that, you, I guess you're making all the different forms at once. Maybe, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but you're kind of the it's being broken down by your microbes that you have in your tea. You'd have to inoculate it, obviously, with IMO or um, something Right. like that, um, you know, to get the most use of it. But the other thing you could always do is, you know, if you're just after um, lactobacillus species and after the the chitin specifically. You know, malted barley has as much chitin as, as, as you know, bioavailability instantly as, as a lot of insect frass does as well. You know, uh, Clackamas Coot talks about that all the time. Um, you know, what's interesting, and I didn't learn this till recently, it's actually thanks to Coot too. If you're trying to chase lactobacillus species, because uh, there's another comment about doing lactobacillus ferments and, and with, um, with uh, insect frass, uh, bamboo shoots. If you can get fr the fermented bamboo shoots that has up up to 400 different species of lactobacillus in it, which I had no idea about. And I would actually love to have someone that's doing like pow powdery mildew or some other fungal infection on their plant, try it as a uh, application treatment because you can buy that stuff in like any Asian market, super cheap. It's not very expensive. And it has all these live cultures in it. You know, something that I, I thought was pretty interesting. But um, as far as the tea goes, I really recommend taking it and growing it, mixing it in with your fungi and doing IMO collections and then making your your liquid IMO from that. Um, you're, you're getting that both the instant, you know, broken down, um, you know, insect fast from that fungi that was done in the collection, but also the, the uh, you know, active microbes that can kill stuff. So um, to me, it's like a better way to utilize it. But if you just wanted to do it as an insect fast as like a calcium booster or something like that, an SAR response, you can totally brew it as a tea, but you, you're going to have to inoculate it with a compost tea or some other, you know, living inoculant. Um, just insect frass and water and air is not going to give you much of a result, I don't think. Yeah, I also want to say that, um, so they're talking about chitin. Um, so 
chitin by itself can definitely prime the immune system of plants. And sometimes, so like, like with chitinases or other sort of other compounds that can act like chitinases, like I think we've talked about citric acid can have a sort of a chitinase like effect where it, I think it deacetylizes uh, the chitin into smaller chains. And when that happens, um, that can, that can sometimes make the chitin more or sometimes less um, receptor friendly to certain plants. So they will, they will, they have receptors on their, on their cell wall that will bind with some of these structural components and go, Oh, something with chitin is here. Now that also sometimes happens with just beneficial fungi and that kind of thing. That's how some of these biopriming effects happen. They can be more, sometimes they're a, they're a generalized response. Sometimes they are a, much more specific and specialized response, which is interesting. And I think that's where it gets into like the really cool optimization um, effects that we can be as cultivators kind of symbiotically with our plants. Like if I know that it's gonna be autumn and I get powdery mildew in the autumn, because maybe there's rains or whatever, and then everything gets moist and the powdery mildew spores bloom. And uh, you know, every few weeks, you know, the first few weeks they come into my grow. If I already know that's happening, There are bacteria that I could use, for example. There's mycoparasites of powdery mildew that can be applied. Um, uh, and there are also, you know, I can, I can apply these chitin-like stru uh, structures and go and make the plant go, oh, let me prime myself against things like fungi. Or chitin is also important for the cuticles of lots of insects and mites. So there can also be some of those effects too. But a lot of times, like with caterpillars or other insects, There are other things that are very specific to the species and also things that try to suppress the plant immune system that will modulate that response even further. So I think that if we can tune it even more, you can get a lot more out of like, like a chitin application or something like that. So I'm excited about that too. Someone else commented about using different insects. It really helps to use different insects. I know that when I do the IPMO, my preferred method is to utilize um, the local insects, usually with like a light trap. So if you just take a lamp and put it right above a five-gallon bucket of water, a three-gallon bucket of water, and it's like two or three inches above it, when the insects go to fly to hit it, they'll hit the water, and they'll drown, uh, and then you're good to go. You can just scoop them out with a little aquarium net. You can get you know pounds and pounds and pounds of insects a night that way. Um, there's lots of other little simple insect traps, but um, or pay your local neighborhood kids or even your own kids if you have them. Uh, you know, so many cents for for insect or whatever, and uh, and utilize that to um, you know get your your source that way. And it can be you know we were utilizing it ourselves and making it on the spot in Africa. So um, yeah, same thing in Zimbabwe. I have a whole video on it. We just were able to buy insects at the market there, thankfully uh, by the kilo, which is a little bit easier, but uh, it's like cheating. Um, what, tell us a little bit about, oh, go ahead. You're muted. Yeah, sorry. So I want to get your impression on this. Um, since you mentioned IPMO and it's something that I'll be talking about at the Living Soul Summit, but it's also something that just enraptured me with regards to the soil microbiome, microbiome dynamics. It's that it's, there's these, there's these viruses out here. You know, um, these are baculoviruses. This this paper goes into a lot of detail, but um, the cliff notes is that these baculoviruses, for those who don't know, um, they're everywhere. They're very common. Uh, 
research report that I'm citing in the, my presentation upcoming uh, found between like 10,000 and like maybe 600,000 virions per gram of soil. Uh, so what will happen is that these viruses get into caterpillars. Um, they're very specific. They only affect certain caterpillar physiology. In fact, they won't even actualize in a gut pH like ours or like mammals or birds. They have to be in an alkaline gut, which caterpillars have, which helps them. Um, for those who don't know, the, the actual, that helps them with like ROS reactions in plant cells. It like neutralizes them when they're feeding on like plant tissue and that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of advantages that pests have adaptively, but essentially it's on the leaves. Um, it gets into the caterpillar. It gives them sepsis, essentially. Uh, it breaks, or it, or in some cases, it even gets into their their neurons and, and causes them to like uh, go up the plant or act very crazily in a hyperactive way. Eventually, they die and they their cells explode and you get this like gooey caterpillar. If you ever seen like a caterpillar that's not like fuzzy and moldy, but almost like um, uh, like it's become liquefied putrefied, then you've probably seen a baculovirus infected caterpillar. And a lot of them are from are common in like budworms. But here's where I'm getting with this. If they're very common also in the soil because precipitation washes it into the soil and the soil and then like sometimes agricultural equipment, other things will like kick them up into dust and they'll move great distances. Um, up until recently, it's been very hard to like find out if this is even a thing and now we find out that they're like everywhere they're on, there's like there are all kinds of leaves you're probably when you're buying produce or if you're growing in a garden you have like a tomato and you like bite into it there's probably all kinds of virions like these that we're not even you know thinking about so do you think that there might be a benefit to that with ipmo of course bacteria of course fungi are multifaceted in their own rights but in this way this is like another factor that i think doesn't get talked about for obvious reasons, but what are your, what do you think about that? When I, when I say it like that? No, I, I had no idea about these. This is a, a whole other, you know, angle on it. Um, I think that's really cool. We had one other guy come on. Gosh, I'm trying to remember which guest it was. I think it might have been the guy from Vietnam, Quan Con Femme, which is 251, but I might be wrong. Um, but he was talking about they would get the slugs from the local area and put them in a bucket with a little floating plant island in the middle. And then basically seek out the sicker ones and they could basically culture the nematodes on their little like captive population. And then they would let them all basically get die or get close to dying. And then they'd stir them in the water and then strain it and apply that. And that was like a different way to kind of collect the local um, uh, pathogens. But I think, or in that case, nematodes, but I think like working on these kind of like local collection methods is kind of the future of a lot of these different biocontrol methods and like IPMO is just one piece of that same thing with the the nematodes I and mean, like you're talking about with this this fungi in the soil or virus in the soil I think you know the more we can learn about this and perfect it the the, the better we're going to have and also it's safer right it's stuff you can use around your kids and your dogs like I'll drink a glass I've drank and, and when I went and taught the IPMO down in in Texas and in, in uh, November to prove to a bunch of people that um, weren't necessarily maybe the open, most open-minded to, to organic agriculture. I drank a shot of it and they couldn't believe it, you know, that, that it was drinkable. You know, you can't do that with most of your other stuff you buy at the store. You know what I mean? That's what's the other great thing about all these is that you don't have to worry about, Oh, we had a flood. 
and it all ran off into the local stream. Well, that's okay because it's just the microbes that were there in the first place. You just bait a few more of them. You know what I mean? Ex absolutely, exactly that. And you're going to have regional differences too, which is where I think like the genetic sequencing comes into it. Um, basically, you know, you might be, I mean, and we, per, I think it's very possible that we can get to a point where plausibly I can like uh, get like a little soil sample and I can, you know, sequence some uh, components of it and find like, oh, you know, there's this, there's a baculovirus here with a, 93% similarity to this reference genome and maybe there's no research uh, related to it or there's very little info or maybe there's collaborative information from other reports or other people who have talked about their interactions or reported their their uh, their findings and we can I can go oh well actually this uh, the caterpillars around here are more adapted to this there's reports of that or there's reports of adaptation to this bacterial strain I'll use a different one. I'll use one from this location or or something like that. Sometimes the new invasive thing coming in is maladapted and actually doesn't do very well in the new environment. Sometimes it's the opposite because nothing has seen it before. It's actually going to do really well. So, you know, both of those things can happen. But with this, with that knowledge um, profile, I think that, you know, you can be way more effective. There's also like viruses that go after, um, I talked about in the presentation too, powdery mildew and botrytis uh, causes hypovirulence. So the virus gets in the uh, powdery mildew and it, and it maybe it can colonize the plant, but it does really, really poorly um, and doesn't really expand very much, but it might still be able to reproduce. Well, that's cool, right? Cause then maybe, you know, you can, you can um, facilitate the ones with the viruses and maybe, you know, basically smash the powdery mildew population in, in the area. And that's ecologically conscientious. They were already there. So you can exploit something that's there that we haven't been able to before. So that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I love lactobacillus for that. It works really good. You can air collect it on your rice collection or your rice wash and, uh, and use a local lactobacillus to smash your powder. It only works really well. What's this now? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, sorry. I was gonna... yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was trying to get rid of it. Yeah. Tell us about your book <laughs> that you're working on. yeah, so it's uh, basically, it's like a theory of IPM conceptual model. It's kind of like, um, if you want to know not just what works, but kind of like how and why it works, I like to, like, you know, in my videos, um, my presentations, I like to take that approach might be maybe a little bit, um, you know, detailed and sometimes people are not interested in that, which is totally valid. Sometimes you just need, what are my options? What makes sense? And I make that kind of content too, but it's, it helps, I think sometimes to go back and go like, well, um, why does the BT work? Or like, for example, I've had people ask me like, okay, well, does the BT infect us or is it a problem? And how do you know it's not a problem? And, you know, I think a lot of people just go, uh, that's just what I learned uh, in my training, that it doesn't hurt humans. And then people ask why, and like, I don't know. And that's not very convincing. <laughs> or with IPMO, I'm sure you've gotten that response, maybe sometimes, right, where people go, Like, uh, isn't that going to colonize me? Isn't that going to infect me in a bad way? Like you were just saying earlier. So 
you know, you have to, you have to be convincing. And, and the way to do that is not to be a charlatan. The way to do that is to say, Hey, look at this empirical evidence and let me explain it to you in a way that's understandable and digestible. And the Everswarm concept is all about like having that layered uh, defense and understanding how it works so that you can be um, uh, kind of adaptive and modular as well, just like the Everswarm is. Nice. Yeah, I, 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 on that particular note, I when every time I teach IPMO, I always show them. Uh, Here's what happens when you spray bees, and it has two bees covered in fungi, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, no, they're. They don't just target the stuff that you don't like. Like you have to be using them responsibly. And that, that's one thing that goes with any biocontrol, you know, you gotta be be mindful. And hey, if you have something that is gonna bug pollinators, for instance, spray it at night. You know what I mean? You're not gonna have bees and butterflies out there at nighttime. You might have some local pollinating moths if you're especially in the desert, but outside of that, you're not gonna kill any of your bees or beehives or anything like that. So sometimes just changing what time of day you do the applications can can, you know, solve that type of problem. That would be like one of those cultural controls we were talking about. Like in some cases, like, okay, yeah, maybe like, maybe that would be a labor cost that you might not be able to do, or maybe that would be overtime. But like, um, you know, depending on your situation, I do feel like if you know that and you care about their local environment, you know, that that's a change that you can do. Buveri Bassiana, my favorite biocontrol. And that sort of, and those in like the cordyceps adjacent groups. Um, I love them, but a lot of them are broad spectrum, which we've talked about before. And so that just like a broad spectrum chemical, it's a broad spectrum entomopathogenic fungus. It will affect a lot of different things. Sometimes some beneficial biocontrols like soft bodied insects like orias, for example, right? And so if you if you don't know that and you apply them together, maybe the orias doesn't work. And then you say, you know, I, I spent like $10,000 or I spent $2,000 or whatever over however many weeks and the Arias didn't work. Um, and and they, you never realize that that could have been a, a problem. But with something like your uh, AI assistant, it can go like, hey, by the way, uh, did you know Arias is this kind of bug and is susceptible to these other controls? Maybe try doing this. See, that's very helpful. It might be a blind spot for some people. You don't have like this deep arcana of ecological information. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, we had another question. Does Matt uh, have Matt? Do you have any thoughts on preventing and treating mealybugs and houseplants? A big part, like with a lot of pests, is uh, like a uh, scouting early and often. I feel like a lot of times, like for example, uh, my parents' house, we have a pomegranate tree. And when I visit um, when they're in season, they, they tend to be quite fruitful, but um, those mealybugs always end up getting there. And, and like, you know, sometimes they might be there from the season before, but a lot of times they come in on the wind. And so they'll eke out some existence in some nook or cranny for like several months while the female builds up. And they're mostly, they're usually only females and then they reproduce asexually. So you get a bunch of babies, which you also can't really see if you're not looking for them. And then they radiate, radiate out on the plant, right? And then you get all these clusters. And then suddenly it's like, where did all these mealybugs come from? That's how it happens. So if you're looking for them, if you know what to look for, um, then that's really important. The ones on cannabis, you know, uh, they can be very hard to identify. And there's a lot of mealybugs that look pretty much the same, almost identical or identical 
Um, but from the ones that I've actually sent in for identification, because very hard to tell, and sometimes and sometimes you just can't. Like it's just intellectually dishonest to say it's definitely this. But like citrus mealybug uh, was one example contextually because we were we were in a citrus uh, uh, orchard very close to one, and it looked very similar. So that was likely the case. Um, there's long-tailed mealybugs that, that I've seen in cannabis, for example. So like there are various species that um, that will probably colonize cannabis that are generalists, some of which will vector viruses too. So you got to watch out for that as well. And we don't know what the virome of cannabis is or otherwise we don't know the various viruses in the cannabis microbiome that colonize cannabis for good or for ill. Yeah, I know. I've definitely run into a, I'm, what I'm pretty sure is a virus that I think I've sent you pictures of is transmitted by cucumber beetles, and no one's been able to really pin it down yet um, in Oklahoma. And I'm sure it's in the, more than just Oklahoma, but that's where I've observed it three times. Um, so, yeah, there's, I there's want to a say, whole. Go ahead. did I tell you, or or when we spoke, because I do remember us speaking about it, did I suggest it might have been cucumber mosaic virus? Did you did I say that, do you think, or do you remember? I don't think. I can pull the photos up again real quick. It doesn't, I'm pretty sure I can find them quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no stress if you can't, but um, but like, uh, I think I remember, because it is true, actually, that the diabrotica species, the cucumber beetles, they do... Uh, like some leaf beetles are actually um, competent vectors for some viruses. Despite me mentioning the other ones that were more common, I think, you know, cucumber uh, cucumber beetles, I think that they can vector cucumber mosaic virus, which also is found in, in cannabis. But this isn't, I don't think this is necessarily the symptoms of CMV um, myself. Yeah, I, it's something different because this that's what the top of the leaf looks like. Like a, there's definitely something going on with it. And then the bottom of it looks like this. That's the same leaf. So Very it's weird really modeling. bizarre. Yeah, I've never seen anything else like it except for, again, it's always on plants that have uh, leaf hopper or not leaf hopper, uh, cucumber beetle damage. And I'll, I'll show you the beetle. This is the guy. This is the little guy that's doing it. Or at least the ones I've only seen it on these plants, stuff that have fed on by these guys. That's And something those, else, too. uh, Go ahead. oh, I'll just say uh, a recent survey that came out, uh, which I posted on my Instagram in, in a, a cool and easily to, easy to read way, talked about how there there was basically a survey of different pests in the United States of America, various locations, and cucumber beetle got kind of a high incidence rate. So you know, you know, this could be ground zero, you know, for a uh, for a certain virus getting into cannabis and spreading around because cucumber beetles feed on all kinds of plants. So the chances of them vectoring something are plausible, certainly possible. I did uh I did get this photo when I was at the same grow, which is one of the best insect photos I've ever taken, which is fucking great. Watching the parasitic wasp lay eggs and the butterfly eggs. You don't get a chance to take those too often. This is really nice, um, especially because Uh, it's actually very hard for me to place this uh, this insect, this particular parasitoid. Is it a calcid? Maybe it kind of has. It doesn't really have like the giant uh, um, back legs that a lot of uh, calcid or calcid wasps have, but it does have that kind of like, it's almost like how a, it's got this like recursive 
ovipositor. It kind of like goes back, or like dog legs it back around the the ed edge of the abdomen to like insert into the uh, eggs. That's what that, or at least that's what these looks like. Yeah. So, I think it's a really great picture. I love it. I remember finding it and it'd be like, oh shit, oh shit, I can't, where's my camera? And like just panicking, trying to make sure I actually got the picture. Oh man, I'm sure you have tons of cool ones. Uh, I definitely look forward to, to your book and uh, and the awesome photos I'm sure you're going to have in there for reference. Um, uh, you were talking a little bit before the show about silica. Um, I did a bunch of testing with silica in, in your, um, back when I worked at the aquaponics source, We tested um, the different minerals. We were trying to figure out why the tomatoes didn't taste the same. It was actually one of the things that helped us eventually get to full root zones. But um, we tested the mineral content of the aquaponic, hydroponic, and soil tomatoes. Um, we got clones out from a really good tomato guy in, in Boulder. And the mineral composition difference was chloride and silica were the two that were missing. All the rest of the minerals were the same except for those two. Once we increased the, the chloride levels in the water just by dosing like potassium chloride or whatever it was to bring those up above 60 uh, and then a dose the silica um, uh, with potassium silicate uh, for a pH up instead of potassium bicarbonate or potassium carbonate, it completely changed the flavor significantly better for the, the tomatoes, which I thought was really peculiar. Um, so I was interested to hear uh, your thoughts on silica. I know I've seen frost resistance and heat resistance, uh, reduced bolting uh, in lettuce and aquaponic systems. So it definitely does really do a lot of beneficial things to your plants. Uh, I thought you could touch on that because we talked a little bit about it before the show. Yeah, I have a, a paper to talk about that, but you had Mr. Grow It on recently, Chris, and uh, you mentioned like uh, pictures and stuff. So some of my pictures are actually, um, actually in there in the in the Awesome. in the book. So if you guys want to check that out with IPM, you can check that book out. I was I really appreciated um, sharing that info. There's not a whole lot, especially when I started. There was not a whole lot of information. That was the impetus for my own work. I had friends. Um, and cannabis and also in other plants are like, hey, Matt, you're one of those kids who like really liked insects growing up and that kind of stuff. And that kind of blossomed into an enjoyment of nature in general and an appreciation for the ecology and other various organisms that eat them and, and associate with them. And so I was like, well, you know, that uh, that'll be my um, that'll be my pathway. And uh, anyways, going to the silicon paper here. It was really interesting this report, uh, but I'll I'll agree that there's a that that uh, silicon can have a lot of different effects. Like for example, um, strengthening the structure of the plant cell is my understanding that it can facilitate that at least in some plants in certain ways more than others. It can also prime the immune system. Apparently, it can also by itself be like an immune uh, pathway elicitor. But I'm I'm forgetting which ones um, right off the top of my head. But if it is still if it elicits A stimulation of one pathway, um, it can it can have a, a suppressive effect on a diametric um, pathway. So, like I think you know, like salicylic acid and jasminate acid pathways are diametrically opposed. If one of them is uh, facilitated more, then the other one is impaired more. And some pests will even elicit the wrong. They've like uh, developed ways to elicit the wrong immune system response. so that it countervails their presence, which is fascinating to me. But here, this is a paper 
uh, from plants is called aphid feeding induces phytohormonal crosstalk without affecting silicon defense against subsequent chewing herbivores. So for example, piercing sucking mouth part insects like leafhoppers, aphids, whitefly, things like that, they can they tend to elicit certain kinds of responses. I believe biotrophic fungi are like this too. So like powdery mildew, if I'm remembering right. Um, uh, so like you have different kinds of pathogens and insects and mites that will elicit certain kinds of responses. Generally, just they just have similar, in the case of like certain insects, certain physiology that's conserved that does the same kind of thing. On the other hand, you'll have like chewing mouthpart insects like beetles or caterpillar larvae and things like this that will elicit the opposite response. And so what they found was that Uh, as they say in the abstract, that the facilitate that facilitation occurs when this is a term uh, when one herbivore improves plant quality for other herbivores, including when the former comprises plant defenses or compromises. Yeah, compromises plant defenses. So silicon is an important defense in grasses that increases following activation of the jasmonic acid pathway. Given that aphids often stimulate the cell's silic acid pathway, the opposite. We hypothesized that this could reduce silicon defense because of the well-documented antagonistic crosstalk between SA and JA. So they took a look at that. And what they found, among other things, was that chewing herbivores triggered a higher JA concentration and induced silicon uptake, regardless of the previous feeding by aphids. But chewer growth rates were not impacted by prior aphid herbivory. I'm sorry, they weren't, but <laughs> were reduced by 75%. When feeding on um, increased silicon plants, so um, so their growth rate was actually negatively affected by the silicon going up. So they concluded that aphids caused phytohormonal crosstalk, but this was overridden by the chewing herbivory that also induced the silicon uptake. So that was kind of interesting to me, and and little and interactions like these. And for example, the chewing pest they use here, Helicoverpa armigera, that's the cotton bollworm. Very closely related to the uh, cotton earworm, or I'm sorry, the corn earworm. So that's Helicoverpazea, which we often deal with in cannabis. I think the bullworm too probably also can colonize cannabis as well. I've seen bolo worm uh, in was Africa or Puerto Rico, one or the other. I think it was in Africa, South Bullworm Africa, gets into Africa for sure. It's a it's a huge problem. What was? Did you have any experiences? with it in Africa directly? No, we found one and we just like ID'd it and then we're like, oh shit. But we didn't, it wasn't like an outbreak or anything. It was just, I think it was at the SA farm. If my memory serves me correctly. I know a big one in Africa, especially Southern Africa and especially South Africa um, is the uh, fall armyworm. This is a pretty huge, pretty huge pest there causing lots of problems. And also in China, apparently, fall armyworm, which um, I believe is native to North America, uh, but it has, it has wound its way into Eastern Asia, uh, the African continent, and also various parts of Europe, Western Europe, North, uh, Central Europe. Um, and these different populations have now kind of become their own thing and with their own adaptations. And then sometimes those populations will mix through agricultural trade that's another thing that I think people have to be aware of. But anywho, that was that's just one one of many examples of um, uh, how like uh, you can use things like silicon or other nutrients 
to cause like a, a biopriming response. You don't even need something more complicated or like a phytohormone or something like that, which I think can get a little bit murky with what you want to consider like okay to apply uh, and what's not okay to apply. Yeah, we had a question from chat saying, have you ever noticed the trim machines seem to have a harder time when you feed it silica compared to no silica? What have you noticed? Picking leaves and trimming before harvesting leaves hard to pull. Yeah, it's, it's going to toughen up that plant and, and make it much more you know resistant to a lot of your basic stressors like when tearing and all that. The cell walls are stronger, right? That's part of why it's fighting off the fungi. Um, one of the other things I would say, too, just to add to that is if you have hypersilica dialed in for aquaponics, it adds up to seven days to your lettuce's shelf life because it makes it crisper and tougher. So if you're, you know, growing for commercial production of vegetables uh, and herbs and you're going to have them shelf stable, like an refrigerator or something like that, they'll last significantly longer. Like, uh, you know, seven days is a long time for a lettuce head. Uh, you know, to, compared to, you know, in addition to what its normal time was. So, you know, it, it's making not just cannabis tougher, but all different types of crops tougher. One of the things with um, like, so grasses, so silicon or silica, like uh, uh, ex exudate in production in the leaves of grasses is pretty commonly associated with like, specifically being an insect defense response um, evolutionarily. And for those who don't know, actually, grasses are not, or how do I put this? Um, grasses are more recent than like trees and a lot of other kinds of plants that you might associate with the moniker of like a tree or a shrub. Um, uh, grasses are kind of more of a recent thing that has developed in, in the world of plants. And I think that that is one thing that they've done really well. Like some, like ancient grasses are things like, uh, or like, or what are phylogenetically basal things like bamboo. Uh, you might know if, if you didn't know, that's a, that's a grass plant. It looks very different from a lot of the grasses you associate with as a grass and also like sugarcane and things like this, um, or at least the more like wild form uh, of those plants. And uh, a big part of it is actually caterpillar mandibles. I was reading a report where caterpillars like the cotton bollworm and corn earworm, they have different species or different strains that have adapted to grasses or, and they're, and they're the like denticles on their, on their mandibles are more adapted to to grasses and those who weren't their mandibles would over time they would get like dulled and it was it, it's a sublethal effect but it essentially made it harder and harder and harder for them to um just eat more and in aggregate it caused them to have a lower uh, uh biomass it caused them to have it interfered with other things in their gut and all of these things, maybe it doesn't kill the insect outright, but I think that it's important to consider that if you add up all of these disadvantages into one holistic package, um, they're greater than some of their parts. And, and I think that's like, that's something that's slept on a little bit in, uh, in agriculture. Again, hard to quantify sometimes, but when you see the research that shows that this is the case, um, you should then try to experiment and see if you see a difference uh, in your particular uh, case. Oh yeah, absolutely, 100%. And when I teach silica and when I, when I do teach minerals for aquaponics or even soil, I always teach it as a macronutrient, right? It's in those macronutrient ranges. It's above, you know, 20 parts per million or five parts per million or whatever the threshold is. And you're aiming for 50 or above, you know, in most cases, liquid solutions. So, um, you know, it's, it's 
should be considered and taught as if it's a required nutrient. Will plants grow without it? Yes. Were they going to be much weaker and have a much, you know, weakened immune system uh, compared to ones without it, with, with it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're going to have a way better time. You're going to get better trichome density uh, on cannabis. You're going to get better flavor in, in your vegetables and cannabis and everything else. You know, they, remember, that's what the silica is, what those trichome stocks are made of, right? So you need that. You know, cannabis is using a lot of it. So if you're starving it of it, you know, you're going to have problems. It's another reason why I like lava rock. If you're going to go with soilless medium or even have that at the bottom of your, your pots, it's going to dissolve as that gets acidic and, and break that down and make some of that silica bioavailable kind of in a passive way as well, which is really good. I like to think, you know, it can be helpful to think of like the, the phyloplane, right? The surface of like the leaf and the stem and that kind of a thing. In my aphid video, I talked about a lot of different things. And one of the things I mentioned was that um, like trichomes in various, uh, uh, on various plants, like they can, they can interfere with the movement and the feeding of various pests. And uh, if you think about it, it's, it's actually something I, I want breeders, obviously we want more trichomes and cannabis for a lot of reasons. Um, but even the, even the non-glandular trichomes, I think it would be, I've seen some uh, absolutely tormentous plants that just, just full of hairs on the, on the leaves, on the petioles, on the stem. And, uh, and especially ones that will like, they might be like a downy um, kind of like a, a coat that's kind of like all going in one grain, but sometimes they're like, they'll, they'll stick out a lot more. And when you look at like how an aphid feeds or something, it's kind of this bumbling, clumsy, like large for an insect kind of bulbous creature. And it has to stick its mouth part into the plant epidermis to feed. But if you have this, if you have all these like massive spikes, like jutting out of the plant, it's actually kind of hard to feed or like maneuver your head appropriately. All of these things kind of add up and they cause them to, to use a bunch of energy when they're moving around, which will lower the energy they have for all of those reproductives that they make. Um, and also for nymphs that are small, much smaller, they might have an even harder time feeding and they might die or, or get picked off easier or something like that. So, you know, it's one of those aspects of breeding where I think like, if we think about it, um, we could really, we could, we could really advance uh, the plant defenses without like losing too much as a cost, like spikes in the, in the ecological world are pretty, they're pretty cost effective. Things that have di giant spines they do pretty well. It's very hard to like do stuff with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I think that's most of our question. Oh, someone else asked, what's the most basic application of Mabrea bassiana uh, in a soil grow? I'm not sure what that means, honestly. What do you think? I mean, are you I don't know if they mean product or like you would just mix it up at the rate. Usually, what is it? I forget how many grams it is from memory. If it's 50 grams or if it's per gallon or if it's, no, not 50 grams per gallon. Is it eight grams per gallon? I don't remember. It definitely depends on what you're going after and what you're trying to do too. But, um, well, I mean like a, a very, a very, very basic way to use it, I guess, if, if that's what they mean is like, can you, also your, your audio is good on my end too. Um, but if you, I mean, you could certainly just apply it by itself. I think it works synergistically with other products that you might apply. 
Um, but if you wanted to just use like Bouveria bassiana, uh, you can we can water it into the substrate that you're using. Um, there's <laughs> I don't know how effective this is, but there's research that shows them shows people who have like tried to see how long does Bouveria stay in the tissues as an endophyte. Um, I think, uh, for example, like in corn, and they literally like straight up like injected the Bouveria, like um, I think the propagals of spores, like into the stem, like with a syringe, just like that, like with no pomp or circumstance. And it lasted a long time, uh, if I'm remembering right. And uh, so, you know, maybe there's ways people could use it that way. Is that an approved way to use it in the commercial setting? Perhaps not, but um, it's one of those things where I wonder like, Maybe we can uh, uh, accentuate its effects. I know some people like to water it in for root aphids too. I don't know, maybe that's what they mean by when the soil grow. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, the other cool thing is none of the biocontrols cause any problems with aquaponics. You don't have to worry about fish safety with any of the biocontrol products that I've ever seen on the market. So, unlike the like some of the chemical products or even some of the natural plant based ones, um, can be super lethal to fish depending on on what you're doing. Um, anything else you wanted to touch on before we uh, wrap up? I don't want to take up your whole evening. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, I think I did have another little interesting. I have two interesting things we can go over. Um, sure. Maybe they'll blow people's minds or inspire some people to look into stuff. So the first one I have here is... I promise I won't be uh, too garrulous. This is from a research report called Plant Surfaces of Vegetable Crops Mediate Interactions Between Chemical Footprints of True Bugs. So like aphids, stink bugs, um, orias is a true bug, for example, like things in the hemiptera, and their egg parasitoids. So like the wasps you were just uh, showing us, for example. And I'll just go to this diagram here. This is showing, um, you know, a lot of people know that volatiles coming off of plants will be, sig they're like signals or they can act as signals to predators of the things giving off the signals. Um, sometimes the signals are coming from the plant, sometimes they're coming from the insect themselves. And sometimes you it requires the combination of several compounds from both as kind of an aromatic bouquet that tells the organism, like a parasitoid wasp, oh, this is definitely what I want. I'm going to home in on that. Because this doesn't always happen in nature. And you can get situations where um, if the stimulus, if they encounter the stimulus for a behavior like searching and then they don't find anything, they can get desensitized to it kind of in a Pavlonian way. So it's not always a guarantee that you're going to have these reactions that you that you read about in research. which I think is also something that people don't always realize. But um, what was neat was that literally just the movement, like in this case, this is a stink bug um, looking example. And as the bug moved across the leaf, the wasps actually picked up these scents that were coming off of their feet of all things, which I think is kind of neat. Um, and what they found was that actually the cuticle, the, the cutin, the wax, uh, the wax cuticle on the leaves of plants, or in this case, uh, uh, Vicia faba, green bean. Um, they found that if 
if the plant, if you had, if you've washed out the, uh, the cuticle, then actually um, the, the parasitoids were less receptive. They were actually less able to find the eggs to parasitize. Um, and here's an example. Uh, here's a diagram where there's the wax on the top here in B, and then we have the bottom here where the wax has been, um, I believe, washed off. In some way, a treatment with gum arabic, that's what they used to remove the uh, wax very uh, cleanly and neatly. Um, and then in A, what does A here show? Oh yeah, so this is on different plants. So this is a different kind of like waxy. Um, so the, the plant surface is sort of um, hostile. And if we don't play up those strengths, so sometimes foliar feeding or applying sprays constantly, you know, maybe you inherit the defenses that you're getting rid of, but then you're inheriting uh, a more difficult situation potentially too. So there's something to be said of um, the natural components and, and also quantifying them. And then I had this little, this interesting report that talks about the microbiome in a caterpillar and how um, their microbiome resembles some of the local soil microbial communities, which is neat. So just going to the results here, they said that among other things, only 5% of the total bacterial diversity in the soil um, I'm sorry, the caterpillar rather, represented 86.2% of the total caterpillar's microbiome. So 5% of the bacterial diversity was almost 90% of the microbiome itself. And they also said that on average, one quarter of the caterpillar microbiome was shared with the soil, which is kind of neat. Um, and, and as you can see, sometimes that can be beneficial for the caterpillar Here's a bunch of names of the different taxa. Um, I'm not gonna go into all of them, we're wrapping up soon. Um, but you can also see that it's associated with your uh, different environments, coastal dunes, natural grasslands, and riverine grasslands. And uh, yeah, anyways, a lot of, a lot of complicated uh, diagrams, but this is the kind of stuff I think that people should talk more about. And I'm glad that you um, allowed me this opportunity to talk about it from a, maybe not 10,000, but perhaps 100,000 foot distance well i have one other question i was going to ask you just because they were kind of maybe back in 2020 or 2021 they were kind of hitting the market and i was kind of curious there's some um insects being treated now i think uh, caterpillars might be one with virus products uh, on the market and i was kind of curious if you could touch on that or if you had any experience with that just because it's something i don't think I hear too many people talking about, and um, I just want people to be aware that they are a, a, another biocontrol that's that's out there. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I have a video about that. I'm looking for those viruses. So for people who are able to find them, um, this is what the caterpillars look like uh, on the leaves. And I'm excited to say that if you can find these, you can contact me and we get a sample. Um, uh, there's some researchers I know who would who are looking to learn more about them. I've had some experience with them in cannabis. It's one of the few things that you can actually apply for things like budworms in a preventative style. Um, there are other products that are used in uh, other crops, and I think they're highly effective. Um, I find, and they're also very targeted. So unlike the Bouveria we were talking about, things like baculovirus, like we talked about earlier, they're very common um, as products. 
and there's more and more research looking for different strains of these viruses to be uh, more effective. Anyways, yeah, so. Is there a, a way that you, you need them preserved and or not preserved or frozen or not frozen or alcohol or not alcohol? How should, uh, if one were to come across these, how should they prepare them for, for transport, transfer? Excellent, excellent question. So actually, you don't necessarily have to put anything in it. Um, and although it can be kind of a liquefied body sometimes, uh, that's okay. Um, if we're able to just put it in like a vial or something like that, I might even send them out for people that if they can't get access to that kind of a thing. Um, yeah, it's basically like a, a caterpillar virus bounty. And maybe sometimes it's not actually the virus, it's a fungus or a bacteria or something like that. But my, But overall, I feel like they're way more common than we think. Um, I think they, I think they're often invisible to us and, and yeah, I think that, uh, the more research we do on them, the better that we'll be able to understand them. And then maybe even, um, you know, just make use of an aspect of ecology that is, is super specific and even adaptive to some degree. So yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for inquiring. It's, it's just one of those weird directions that um, it's kind of cool to see stuff going. I look forward to seeing that and maybe even some, some pages at some point that we can use to, uh, to go after some of these, uh, these problems in plants. So. Uh, yeah, already, supposedly, um, oh yeah. Go Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> go ahead. I was just say uh, bacteriophages, especially I'm very excited about those. Apparently they're, they're one of the most common, microbes in the soil and they regulate bacteria in the soil microbiome so yeah look into that people google that stuff yeah they're they're totally crazy they're like uh yeah it's it's a whole long long thing to explain but they're they're kind of like viruses but not really and they wipe stuff out in a, in a, can in a good way you, you definitely can see some like gmo'd ones for disease treatments in the future and stuff like that Um, so, uh, how do people find you and find out more about you? Uh, do you have any classes coming up or anything like that? Or, um, you taught, mentioned, uh, you're speaking at an event here soon. Yeah, the Living Soil Summit. So for those who want to attend, um, it's the 7th, 8th, and 9th. I think you can get single day or multi-day tickets. Uh, it'll be in Pahrump, Nevada. Um, Steve Cantwell, um, will be hosting it at his, uh, actually he does, he first grows cannabis, but he also has a produce farm and we'll be eating from his produce farm, uh, various meals, which is very cool. And there's a lot of, there's various people, very cool people, uh, dragonfly earth medicine is going to be there. Um, a ton of other people are going to be there as well. I think kiss organics will be there. Um, and, and other various, various folks. So if you're interested in that, you can find me on the third day, I'll be talking about this holistic IPM. And then also, uh, I think you'll be one of the first people to find out that I'm, I'm currently locking in a date for my Pestapalooza, Pestapalooza, Pestapalooza. Um, which will be in Illinois. Yeah. Uh, that'll be with um, Jordan River, Brocast. And um, hopefully sometime in July. So keep your eyes out for that. And yeah, just keep out uh, some information from my Zentinel YouTube channel. I'll be trying to make more videos there, more informational stuff. I have a big video on russet mites and on aphids that 
I think people will benefit quite a bit from and um, and obviate my own existence. There's so much, so much good information. You might not even need my help, and uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, and and I, I every day I see somebody else that trashed all their plants and veg, and they had russet mites, and it was like, no, why did you do that? You didn't need to throw those plants away. Uh, people definitely uh, need to be better educated on the on the tinier mites for sure. But here's the uh, info on the Pestapalooza. I know you guys had a blast last year, and they're looking for looking forward to this year. Jordan's a big friend of the show. We've had him on a bunch of times. So we've a bunch of both of us have episodes over on on Growcast. Be sure to check out his show as well if you haven't already. Um, also check out New Grow Show. <clears throat> they did a panel with Matt Powers and Chris Trump uh, this past week uh, uh, over on their uh, their awesome channel. We're real good friends with those guys too. And I'll see you guys at the New Grows Cup in June. If you guys are going, that'll be a blast. Um, so uh, and. Um, Let me throw your stuff up here real quick. So if you guys want to find Matt, you can check him out here on Instagram. He has a, a link to his link tree in there as well to the rest of his stuff. If you want to get out all of his websites. Zenthanol on uh, YouTube. Again, some really cool videos. Um, like I said, the history of insects, some great rebuttals to some of the bad info that's out there and a bunch of other, other things. that are uh, really well thought out and well explained with links to the white papers and the descriptions and stuff like that. So uh, this is the one that I really like, the Cannabis Integrated Pest Management Review. That was a really cool video series. And uh, uh, yeah, and we, uh, we haven't checked it out already. It's definitely one of the more interesting brain food videos on, on cannabis out there. And then uh, the Zenthanol Consulting is his website, zenthanol.com. Uh, if you need uh, help with your bugs, uh, definitely check out Uh, his stuff there. I really appreciate it. And that's actually one of my favorite videos I ever made personally because of all the work and information that went into it. And so it really means a lot to hear you say that. Uh, I'm actually probably, it's actually also one of my most proudest videos, despite it not getting as much views as some of my other ones.
Um, I will be teaching a in-person five-day intensive aquaponics class. It's going to be a master class. We're going to go over a bunch of cool shit that we've never gone over before in an education setting uh, in Oklahoma. It'll be based here in Tulsa. So um, uh, if you're wanting to uh, go to that, it'll be the beginning of May. Um, I have the exact dates here uh, the next couple of days. I'm just double checking and booking stuff. Um, but that'll be happening. Um, it's this one of the farms of uh, University of um, or Oklahoma University is teaching with. Um, I have some great friends over there, and we're going to be uh, teaching a class over there for them and kind of go over the super, you know, uh, in depth and very detailed aquaponics master course that's going to be quite a bit different than anything else anyone's seen before, which is going to be fun with lots of cool demonstrations. Um, and then also check out if you guys uh, are interested in learning more about that AI we've talked about today. Um, the, you can check out copylifecultivars.com if you want to support us or get in contact with us to get involved. And then if you want to have access to it, um, just sign up over here. Put your, your email in uh, at the Patreon uh, for Copyleft Cultivars, and um, you'll get emails and all that stuff for when we send out the free version here in the next uh, uh, few weeks. And then uh, also if you want access to the you know, all versions, uh, including the new beta versions and some of the new stuff we're tinkering with before it's released uh, and be the first to have access to it and help support the program. Um, you can obviously sign up for as low as $10 a month um, with a $20 recommended donation. So, uh, you know, if you want to support that, uh, please do. And um, yeah, I appreciate uh, uh, you coming on the show today. And um, you guys can check out the show on uh, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, um, apparently YouTube broke our connection to rumble. So I have to manually upload those. So there are a few episodes behind on that, but I will get that up. And we're also an odyssey now as well. So I'm um, trying to diversify the platforms that you can find the show. Um, so that if YouTube gets any crazier than it already has been lately, which I think with the election year, they might, uh, with the censorship stuff, at least we'll have our, our library and the show, uh, on elsewhere in there. Also look forward to switching to, um, a platform that allows us here in the next few few months to uh, <clears throat> multi-stream to those as well live so that's in the works as well all righty guys thanks a lot for watching we'll see you guys again next week cheers